Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome a new voice to the program this week. I want to welcome Brian Hawkins. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a James Madison Fellow at Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C. Brian, welcome to the show. Tell us just a little bit more about yourself. Um, thank you, Brian. Um, for one, I spell my name with an I rather than a Y. But <laughs> We can forget but, um, that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But um, based out in um, Alexandria, Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., originally from um, California, um, veteran of the U.S. Army, did a tour of South Korea and Afghanistan, and I'm happy to uh, be here today. We've got a great topic to discuss, too, especially with 2024 just around the corner. You know, everybody is just kind of, all right, you know, the election circus is wowing up to speed. You have an article here titled, Libertarianism Had Its Moment But Is Ill-Equipped for the Task of Saving America. And because I lean very libertarian in, in, in how I see the world, um, I was really intrigued by, by your observations here. Um, talk to me a little bit about, first of all, when we talk the libertarian movement or we talk libertarians, that can be a pretty broad term. What what do you mean when you say, you know, libertarianism has had its moment? Good question, because um, one of the things I probably didn't identify as much as I would, would, would have liked to in the article. But I think the key shift I'm discussing here is just kind of this core free market fundamentalism that has reigned um, over the GOP probably since the Reagan era. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that um, I've noticed has been a shift on the right. Um, I know I first noticed this at the um, one of the recent Republican presidential primaries when I noticed like there wasn't a, a clearly identified libertarian candidate. You know, before we had Ron Paul, Rand Paul, Gary Johnson, um, and others for the past few decades who who were whose message was part primarily based upon free market and kind of this libertarian idea. But like this time around, we don't have that clearly defined libertarian candidate. So I wanted to explore why that happened and um, reflect a lot upon my own transformation from doctrinaire libertarianism towards this core conservatism. And that that's kind of what I talked through in this article. I like your observation, too, that we did have a very strong libertarian candidate in Ron Paul back in 2008 and 2012. Rand Paul more or less bore the banner in 2016. But, yeah, looking at 2020, nope. <laughs> and, and I don't yeah. really see anybody lining up for this one. Um, why is that? What, what does that signify? Yeah, I think... You know, I, I, I see this person personally within myself, but also within my um, broader network of uh, professional and social. I think one of the key shifts has been a re-emphasis on cultural issues. Um, I think most a lot of people just think that our current culture is broken. You have DEI, CRT, the dramatic decline in religiosity, um, the trans agenda. And, it, you know, people just feel like, almost powerless against all these, all, all this, the tide of cultural secularism. So I think people are trying to push or pushing back against that and kind of realizing that virtue is a core ingredient for society. You need social virtue, you need righteousness. Um, and, you know, I've been going back as part of my current Hillsdale Fellowship, reading some of the founding documents. And one of the things that stood out to me, and I quoted this, um, in the article, but if you read our founders, it's pretty consistent that they view Christianity, Judeo-Christian values as a core component 
of liberty. And when you unravel um, these these Christian virtues, these, these Judeo-Christian ethics away um, away from society, society would descend into inevitably into tyranny. And I and I almost feel like that's what's happening right now. In that as we become more immoral or even amoral, I don't think we're getting more free. I think we're actually seeing an, uh, 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 oppressiveness come across society. And the only way to restore that is just going to be a deliberate campaign to restore individual virtue within society. Well, and the catch there, too, is the right is not immune to using the force of the state to impose its sense of virtue. But for virtue to be authentic, at least as I understand it, it's got to be freely chosen. If you if you can't choose it for yourself, then it's really not virtue. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, and, and once again, I think this is one of the things I mentioned in this article is the quote from George Washington, where he mentions that um, part, of, it's a, part of maintaining a republic it's educating the citizens on these core Christian virtues in order for them to, uh, to appreciate and understand freedom. So I think one of the transformations I've had personally is I, I reject the notion that the state is to be this, this um, neutral actor within society, whereas I, I think we're seeing that's not true. The state is going to promote a preferred moral code, a preferred moral code. Um, up until the post-war era, that moral code was Judeo-Christian values. But since then, we've seen a deliberate assault on our key institutions that promoted those virtues. Um, and, and now we've seen Christianity pull out from society and cultural Marxism come in and fill the void. And once again, that cultural Marxism is being promoted by the state. So I think the core takeaway from our recent experience is that one, the state is going to promote a, a preferred moral code. And then we have to decide what that moral code is going to be. And for what it's worth, as I answered this article, that moral code needs to be based on Judeo-Christian values. Wow. Um, one thing you point out, too, is, you know, people think, oh, I can just sit this one out. I don't really have a dog in this fight, but it doesn't matter. Not only have the corruptions been have the institutions rather been corrupted, but the left, they are on a mission. They are going to convert people like it or not. They're, they're coming right after us. Yeah. And, and, you know, when I went through my libertarian phase, um, that, that, was, that was one of my key thoughts, too. It's like, you know, whatever, do whatever you want. Leave me alone. Um, I just want to private. I just want to practice my my faith in private. And you know, it was really the some 2020 that really reversed that for me when I started to realize that oh no, the left isn't going to leave you alone. The le the left is going to actively promote their moral codes and impose it upon the rest of society. So we saw that with the summer of love and the riots of 2020 where it was you had to explicitly express your solidarity with BLM and Antifa or else you you were you were morally insufficient um, for the for the ra racial agenda we've seen the same thing in public schools where like it's not enough to just uh, educate your kids um, now we have to teach them the trans agenda the trans agenda and sexual identity politics so, I think the right was mistaken to believe, at least I, I know I was mistaken to believe that, oh, you can just kind of 
hide within yourself, withdraw from society and be left in peace. And it's like, no, the left is going to have is going to is not going to allow that. So we need to be active and promoting our own cultural values. Brian, tell me this. Will um, will there ever come a point where libertarians and uh, others who lean towards personal freedom, conservatives, for instance, will be able to find enough common ground to present, you know, a, a united yeah. front? Actually, yes. Um, I actually hope so, because um, I, I think one thing to remain clear is that I still believe that free market is the greatest source of material prosperity. Um, it's the it's the best way to create uh, material wealth. Um, however, the object of a nation is beyond the accumulation of wealth. But nonetheless, though, we still I'm hoping that the, I know the term, you know, new fusionism has become a bit controversial. I, I think I still believe in it. I, I think libertarians and conservatives can get together and figure out, you know, how can uh, we still preserve free markets while uh, promoting cultural conservatism. Um, I think one way is the administrative state. Um, libertarians and, the, and conservatives should be united in tearing down the administrative state. Um, the administrative state is probably one of the core tools that is used um, by the left to impose their cultural virtue. So we weaken the administrative state um, and, and a lot of the left's ability to promote cultural Marxism um, is, is de- um, will decline. We've got about 30 seconds here, but I want to get your take. Libertarianism really focuses on the individual. And I just want to liken that to, to what you're calling for, that call for greater virtue. Does it not stand to reason, too, that uh, we want to see a surge in virtue? It's got to start as individuals. Absolutely. But I think individuals are also responsive to the society around them in, in the external circumstances around them. So as much as where the government has a role to promote for, um, some of these moral codes, such as in public schools, um, ethics trainings that we're seeing the military in a government bureaucracy, that they should have an explicit, explicitly Christian tone is essentially what I'm saying. Okay, again, we're talking with Brian Hawkins. He is, again, a uh, James Madison fellow at Hillsdale College in Washington, D.C., as well as a contributor to Young Voices. Brian, where can people find you on social media? I usually stay off Twitter. The best way to find me is going to be on LinkedIn. And just uh, Brian with an I, Hawkins. Yes. (laughs) Gotcha. Thank you so much, and have a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Thank you very much. You too. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Ian Ching back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor, and actually, Ian, you wear a couple of other pretty interesting hats as well. Take a moment and tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a uh, Johns Hopkins master's candidate at the School of Advanced International Studies. Um, My uh, passion is in international diplomacy, but I also love science and technology and and being a space geek has been something that um, that's been a part of my childhood and been a part of my um, young adulthood for a very long time. And so I thought um, writing this piece about about space exploration is something that's like truly you know passionate for me. 
I love the headline, too. Private Enterprise is America's key to the modern space race. Now, I think it was just yesterday I saw a tweet from Elon Musk lamenting that, you know, from Kitty Hawk, we celebrated the anniversary of the first flight at Kitty Hawk, um, to uh, the landing on the moon, I think it was 66 years or something something in that uh, neighborhood. But he talks about what has really happened in the last 50 years. And I got to admit, I was a kid when man landed on the moon, but... Other than the International Space Station and stuff like that, we seem kind of limited in terms of, of what's happening in space. What are your thoughts on why that, why that is the case? Yeah, so, so there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. But basically, during the, during the, uh, the moon race, uh, it was a Cold War type of competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And that kind of was the primary driving factor for moving us forward um, in space technologies. And there's a lot of offshoot technologies that came out of the Apollo program. Um, but after basically the Soviets said, we're not going to the moon, we can't afford it. Um, the United States kind of just, we, we throttled down our space, our space capacity. Uh, we moved to the space shuttle system um, where a lot of the uh, industry and, 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 and efforts were placed into developing the space shuttle, and that was the primary mode of transportation for 40 years until 2011, when the Obama administration, well, essentially the Bush administration, um, decided that this is a system that's too old, we need a new system, and so they ended the program. But they didn't have anything to replace it. There was nothing to replace the shuttles. And so all the American astronauts were taking, uh, taking space flights to the International Space Station on Russian Soyuz spacecraft. Um, and this happened for approximately 10 years until the NASA Commercial Space Pro Commercial Crew Space Program, um, in partnership with SpaceX and Boeing, um, decided to develop a bunch of new uh, human-rated spacecraft. And so the first one went up in 2021, I believe, uh, with the SpaceX Dragon uh, Dragon One capsule. So tell me a little bit about uh, private enterprise, though. One thing you point out in your article is um, even, you know, when this at the, at the pinnacle of the space shuttle program, it was still pretty expensive. The cost of, of launching, uh, you know, a kilogram of weight into into space was quite expensive compared to today. I'm getting pretty used to seeing a lot of the SpaceX launches and so forth, you know, that uh, that are, are being carried on the Internet. It seems like that cost has come way down and, and there there appear to be a lot more private companies that are making it possible for people to put things in low Earth orbit. That's that's very true. Um, SpaceX is possibly the leading contender in the world for tonnage to orbit. And that is like it's beating China. It's beating every competitor in the United States. Um, for just just for some context for your audience, the space shuttle would have cost fifty four thousand dollars per kilogram to go to low Earth orbit, whereas for now, uh, under in the uh, for the Falcon Nine, which is a SpaceX rocket, it would cost about three thousand dollars per kilogram. So that's a orders of magnitude decrease uh, for that industry. And what that means is it's going to open doors to a lot of companies on the ground. It's going to open doors for universities. It's going to open doors for um, different types of you know medical research that are going to now be able to afford to build something or to put something in a satellite and send it to orbit. It's not going to be as expensive. So we are going to see an explosion, I believe, in the, in the space industry where you're going to have a lot more innovation, a lot more science and technology uh, progress in the United States, thanks to SpaceX and to other um, private industries, are going to be the reason why the United States stays ahead.
So talk to me uh, about uh, where China is. Now, look, I've seen a couple of uh, videos, and I assumed they were a joke, but presumably it was, look, China has landed on Mars or landed on the moon or something. I mean, it clearly looked like a cartoon or some some kind of uh, you know animation. But how seriously do we need to take China? I mean, they've got a lot of resources, and I'm sure they put res- research in. Are they uh, are they moving up in the space race? Well, for China, they do have a space industry, and they do have a very uh, robust space industry. However, theirs is a state led type of type of type of organized. Um, industry, which is very similar to how the United States ordered uh, our, our industry in the 1960s. Um, however, for China, it's a much more of a prestige project, right? It's much more about, um, it's a much more about, for in their own perspective, raising their national uh, pride in, in these things. And so um, the, the moon landings uh, for, with the rovers, is, it is impressive uh, from a technical standpoint. Um, but what's, what's more important, I think, is China has a space station of its own, which is separate from the United States. And China's long-term goal, of course, through uh, across all geopolitical questions, is to overtake the United States as a leader of the, of the world, right? And so part of that is going to be being symbolizing to the world that, oh, we are a technological peer to the United States. We are also able to you know, put things in space. And that's something that we can't discount for China. And some, one, one, one of the uh, concerns I, I, I noted in my article was that China is trying to create its own sort of group of, of buddies, um, of, of other middle powers, of other, other space countries, uh, to essentially form a separate block from the United States, right, in, in, in being a leader in space. And so that's the main concern that a lot of American uh, foreign policymakers have with regards to space and space competition. We're we're down to about two minutes left in in our uh, segment here, but uh, Ian, I wanted to ask you about uh, what do you see on the horizon as far as the next big deal in in space travel or space, uh, you know, just utilizing, um, you know, industry in space. Uh, the the moonshot was, I think, uh, a pretty good pinnacle. We've had some other pretty good ones with the International Space Station. What do you see on the horizon that uh, that gives you reason to celebrate? Yeah, so in, in the near horizon, we're going to have the decommissioning of the International Space Station, which has been the primary platform for the United States to do research in space. But we're going to see a lot more commercial space stations going out, right? So we're going to, a lot of private companies, Blue Origin, Axiom, they've been developing their own space stations, and SpaceX is developing the Starship system, which is this huge, massive rocket that's more powerful than the Saturn V, which is the rocket that took us to the moon, more powerful than the space shuttle, more cargo capacity. And so with that rocket that's, that's under testing right now in, in Texas, and probably within within the next half decade it's going to be fully operational you are going to see a lot more human infrastructure in space which is run by american companies where nasa and other government agencies will be a partner to those organizations um and that's what we're most likely going to see and i think we're also going to see a 
huge explosion in tourism and other types of research. Okay, so here's the big question that, that pops into my head. Will government get out of the way and allow you know uh, the private enterprise people to, to have the freedom to operate to really move this at a, at a good clip? Or are we going to have to deal with that bureaucratic oversight uh, for the foreseeable future? I think government is going to have to move out of the way. Um, there is a place for government, but uh, when you look at what China is doing, they're plowing full speed ahead, and if the United States doesn't do that, we're going to fall behind. Okay, again, we are talking with Ian Ching. He is a Young Voices contributor, also a Beyond Earth Institute research contributor and a master's candidate in international relations at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. I want to thank you, Ian, for rekindling my excitement for looking skyward. I remember as a kid, it was a big deal, and I kind of want to feel that same excitement. Where can people find you on social media? Uh, everyone can find me on Twitter or for or X, as it's now called. I'm at ianchain685. Um, you can also find me on Instagram by that thing. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Ethan Brown back to the show. Ethan is a Young Voices contributor as well as the creator and host of The Sweaty Penguin. How are you, Ethan? I'm good. Happy holidays, Brian. I should mention The Sweaty Penguin podcast so people don't say, ah, I should get one of those for my kid for Christmas. But <laughs> how, well, you should do that things, too. How are things going for you? Uh, things are going well. I uh, was saying before we hopped on, I just moved back to Connecticut. So looking forward to a bit of a change of pace in the new year. Exciting stuff coming for the Sweaty Penguins. So go check us out wherever you get your podcasts. You and I have the chance to talk on a fairly semi-regular basis. And it seems like we always end up talking about uh, climate. And so I, I know you've probably kind of been kind of busy here for the last couple of weeks with the 2023 uh, UN Climate Change Conference in, in Dubai. Um, what are your thoughts? D did you actually, did you attend by any chance? I did not attend. Um, I tried to follow as best I could and didn't get to follow as closely this year as in previous years because of the move I was doing. But I actually went into the conference more pessimistic than normal for a few reasons. I think I'm a little frustrated with the United Nations right now and international diplomacy in general. I also think that the president of the conference this year is uh, also the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. Um, there were a lot of scandals around uh, his team kind of trying to play him up as more of a climate ally. And to me, I was hopeful that he as an oil CEO could maybe help bridge some of the divide between climate folks and fossil fuel companies, uh, but was starting to lose faith in that idea as some of these negative stories were coming out. The conference ended up going better than I thought, though. They uh, put together an agreement that uh, wrote in a transition away from fossil fuels. And this is a document that every single country in the world signs. So China signed this, India signed this, Saudi Arabia signed that, like everybody, everybody said that they're good with this. And on the one hand, uh, writing your name on a piece of paper does not mean actually doing it. But a lot of this progress is already happening. And to get people to say the words transition away from fossil fuels, that's the first time this has happened. And I think that's something to be excited about. 
So what kind of timeline are they looking at? I mean, did, did they agree to by this year we will have transitioned away fully or is it just we're going to be fixing to work on getting ready to begin? You understand? <laughs> Yeah, certainly not this year, and I don't think anyone wants that. Um, in terms of possible timelines, I haven't actually gotten to read the full agreement yet, So, I, but my understanding is this is going to take some time. Obviously, this is going to take time. Uh, the timeline at which it is possible really depends on how ambitious people want to be. Um, and it's important, obviously, to not just do it, but do it in a way that is economically beneficial. Today, we see a lot of clean energy like solar and wind and nuclear not only can compete with fossil fuels, but often outcompete fossil fuels. So finding ways to kind of incentivize that, pull back some of the red tape that holds some of these energy sources back, that's all really exciting. I think realistically, it's possible to do a pretty significant level of the transition within uh, the end of the decade um, and maybe shoot toward 2050-ish for an end date. Um, and again, that doesn't mean fossil fuels are gone. It means we just need to make sure that it's carbon neutral so we're not worsening the climate situation we have right now. Okay. Yeah, that was kind of what I was wondering if, you know, they had kind of a firm date in mind, but it, it sounds like the agreement that uh, that they signed says this is what we're willing to work toward without saying, and here's the date that it's all going to be accomplished. Yeah, it's, I mean, to me, what I would see as more important than putting your name on this piece of paper is what does the accountability look like? How are countries communicating what they're going to do? Are they transparent about it? Is everyone willing to work together or is this kind of going to be people on their own getting this done type of thing? I think that there's a certain level of every country is a sovereign nation. You create your own policies. That's well and good. but. If countries can be transparent with each other, share uh, share ideas uh, within reason, I think that that can be a helpful thing for everybody. the um, The goal that pe the world has, at least on the temperature front, is to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100. And a lot of people already are like, "Oh, we give up on this goal. We're already so close to it." But the thing is, it, it by 2100 means if we blip over it, we can bend it back down by 2100. We can actually become carbon negative and get some carbon capture going and bring it back down. So I haven't given up hope on that goal. And I think that uh, if we take these steps that are being proposed, we can we can move in that direction. And you have pointed out, Ethan, that uh, a lot of times people will say, well, what's the point? China and India, you know, these two hugely populous nations, they're not signing on. So what good does it do? Why, why should we diminish our quality of life if, if they're not willing to commit? But it sounds like, well, they may not uh, they may not be completely on board, but it sounds like they're definitely leaning that direction. Yeah, I just did an op-ed in Newsweek about this. This was it came out before the conference when I was still feeling pessimistic about the conference, but remained optimistic about climate generally. And really, what I was trying to say: first off, China and India are engaging on this topic. It's maybe one of the 
best chances the U.S. has to <laughs> agree on stuff with these two countries uh, in the scheme of other issues. India was the country at last year's COP27 that came to the table proposing a, at the time they were saying a phase down from fossil fuels, the language switched to transition away from fossil fuels. Um, so they, they have a lot of work to do, but they're stance was more playing the same game of chicken we were where it was like well if we're gonna phase down our coal you gotta phase down your oil and gas and how can we work that out china again lots of issues but they're actually on track to have their carbon emissions peak in the next few years just based on current policies they do use a lot of coal and a lot of uh, oil and gas but they also are for better or worse, they're the world leader in clean energy manufacturing and batteries. And there's a lot of issues with that, but it's the reality of the situation. I think for the US, we should be looking at how can we compete with China on those things and how can we uh, really reap the benefits of these climate solutions. That was the other thing I talked about, if you want to get into it more. Yeah, we've got about uh, two and a half minutes. So let's let's take a let's take a few moments and, and, and go there. Yeah. So. First off, a lot of climate solutions actually help the economy if you do them right. If you create a bunch of regulations that just crush the economy, that's not good. But a lot of, like I was saying, solar, wind, a lot of these things are now economically outcompeting uh, some of the fossil fuel alternatives. Um, and furthermore, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, in their latest report, they looked at 43 different climate solutions categories and compared them to 16 of the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And these are things that I think generally we'd all like to see, end poverty and world hunger, have innovation, uh, gender equality, uh, clean water, all stuff like that. Um, and they would compare for each solution to each goal. Are there synergies? Are there trade-offs? Or are there a combination of the two? And they found out of 400-something of these combinations that only 12 were pure trade-offs. So what that means is we can, if we're smart about it, address climate and improve every other aspect of our society with the same solutions. That gets me really excited. That's really why I'm out here doing what I do. And I think that if the US can recognize that, stop thinking of climate action as a sacrifice, but rather as an opportunity, we should be doing it anyway, regardless of what anyone else does. And once they see us being successful with it, they'll follow our lead and uh, we can get all of this done. So I, I have to ask, you know, it's interesting that this climate conference was held in Dubai, you know, with all that opulence that rests on fossil fuels. There's a lot of people that stand to lose an awful lot of money, mainly those invested in the fossil fuel industries. Um, it's hard to imagine them getting on board unless they have some way of maintaining, you know, their, their position in the game. What, what do you think of, of their options? That's where you need to work together. And I wish people could work together more. And I, I hope this conference would allow for some of that to happen. Uh, there are companies like Dominion Energy is a big fossil fuel firm. They've uh, recently erected the world's largest floating offshore wind farm. They're building a uh, ship that will be the first uh, US Jones Act compliant ship that can install offshore wind in the US. Uh, so that's just one example. But there are companies that are seeing that 
that these are viable investments. These are ways we can transition our companies into the future. And I hope everyone can get on this path because there really is a lot of opportunity to make money in these new industries. Again, we're talking with Ethan Brown. He is a Young Voices contributor and creator and host of the Sweaty Penguin Penguin podcast. Ethan, where can people follow you on social media? They can find me at Ethan Brown 5151 on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, you can find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, you can also find us on social media and on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Sweaty Penguin. If you're in the holiday giving spirit and want to get some merch and bonus content, go check us out there. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're happy to welcome Samuel Mangold-Lennett back to the program. Sam, it's been a little while since we talked. How are you? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you doing? Fantastic. For those meeting you for the first time, take just a moment to tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm Sam Mangoletta, a staff editor at The Federalist. Uh, you can find us at thefederalist.com or follow us on X, formerly Twitter, at FDRLST. Um, so typically I work in, uh, you know, editing, uh, opinion writing, trying to do some reporting here and there. But uh, I like to cover culture, um, the intersection of culture and politics, and more recently, artificial intelligence and how exactly this exploding field is going to, you know, change how we interact with reality and how it might affect politics and culture. Boy, I tell you, I've been dipping my toe into the AI pool here for the last few weeks. And I, I get a sense that uh, as much as the Internet itself changed how we do things in this world, I have a feeling that AI is going to do all that and maybe more. And I'm just I'm a noob. I'm a beginner at this. You're someone who's much more steeped in it. Talk to me about how China and AI figure into how we should approach the future. Yeah, so. I totally agree. I think AI has the potential to completely change how we interface with reality. Um, now we hear a lot about you know the Terminator situation. I think that's you know right now that appears to still be science fiction. Um, AI in its current form is mostly you know pattern recognition technology that will help us just get to solutions faster. Essentially, um, the issue with China is that you know they're our greatest adversary on the international stage. Um, they are. They've stolen billions and billions and billions of dollars of intellectual property from U.S. patent holders, and they infiltrate basically every single level of the U.S., whether it's private industry, state government, federal government, whatever it is, they're engaged in subversion. Uh, at the same time, I hate to, you know, I knock on wood, obviously, um, you know, it, conflict tensions are rising with China, and it's not out of the realm of possibility we engage in conflict at some in some coming year. Um, AI is has huge potentials for military uses for defense industries. Um, and there's a lot of AI talent over in China because they saw the writing on the walls and started pump, pumping money into this industry, along with quantum computing and telecommunication like 5G, um, to really try and get ahead of the curve on this um, so they could you know really corner the market. So there's a lot of talk among AI industry leaders about how we need to you know, partner with China, especially the West needs to partner with China, particularly the US, so we can you know, figure out how to use this, this technology for the betterment of humanity. It's kind of like uh, how there was talk amongst the Manhattan Project about potentially partnering with Nazi Germany if we figure out that the bomb could destroy the world. That's kind of 
parallel thinking to AI. Um, if you know AI does have the potential to utterly upend how humanity interfaces with reality, we need, everyone needs to be on the same page. That's the thinking behind it. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I, this is just my subjective ear. You you sound more positive than uh, than pessimistic. I think you're more optimistic um, than not when it, when it comes to AI. But China. It seems like there are those who are afraid, and I'm talking primarily within the U.S. government, to, to really talk about China, at least in an adversarial sense. Is that a bad idea if, if they're, in other words, if they're just whistling past the graveyard? Are, are they setting themselves up for regret at some future point? Um, I think so. And for what it's worth, I'm very, I'm very mixed on AI. I think in its properly ordered AI, so to speak, that there, there's a difference between artificial intelligence and artificial general intelligence. Um, so AGI is, you know, the sentient models, totally functioning synthetic intelligence, if you will. I'm very profoundly skeptical and um, more pessimistic about that, the implications of what that could bring. Um, but an a AI in and of itself, I think could be a boon for civilization and really help a lot of people. I think we have to be careful, uh, similar to how NAFTA upended the Rust Belt and has, yeah, it moved some numbers up on spreadsheets and created a lot of wealth for a lot of people. It also brought in a lot of despair and has caused a lot of consequences that we have not seen any solutions to. Um, AI, I think, does have the potential to do something on that, but on a much larger, much global scale. Um, I think policymakers and uh, just leaders across the board who are naive about China, they're fools. China has made it clear that they want to unseat the US as a global hegemon. And if that happens, everything across the world comes tumbling down. The global economy is reliant on the US. If, you know, if we're unseated, what happens to our debt? Things will come due. Um, we're, we are totally reliant on our financialization. We don't have the infrastructure set up to not be a financialized economy. So if that happens, who's to say? Um, that said, you know, I certainly don't want to engage in armed conflict. I think that is not a good thing at all. War is bad, disavow. Um, I, I think there are certain things we can do to avoid that, but it doesn't seem as though China is interested in that at all. And they've made it clear it's not a matter of if they move on Taiwan, where our chip manufacturing, where AI, the AI is reliant upon, it's a matter of when. And I love one thing that I really loved about your article is you pointed out the uh, the interesting juxtaposition uh, or the visions between the way the way the U.S. sees the world versus how China sees it. And maybe if if you'd like, walk us through. You know, America's core value is what? Yeah. So at the end of the day. Um, it's naive to assume that we can, you know, collaborate with China on such important technology because we see we perceive reality in totally different ways. Um, so the West perceives reality upon predicated upon Christian values. China does not. They predicated upon predicated upon you know Confucianism, if you will. Um, currently, the the underlying ethos of the Chinese Communist Party is just to advance their rule. They see themselves as a middle country, and that doesn't mean like middle geographically, that means between earth and heaven. So they want to see 
they want they believe that everyone ought to bend the knee to China, whereas the U.S. kind of sees itself as the evangelizers of Western values. We want to bring everyone into the global community. We want to advance prosper or exp um, export prosperity, so to speak. You know whether or not these are good or bad things. That's besides the point. That's just what it is. That's just what we're doing and what we have been doing since the since the twentieth century. Um, these are the modes we're operating in, and China being the you know the, the second most powerful country in the world right now, that's what we're up against. So we're going into this assuming China is operating on the same terms as we are, but they're not. They're operating in an entirely antithetical ethos. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with uh, with some of the doors that AI opens. Um, the more I learn, the more encouraged I am. Before, though, I was a little bit more like, uh, here comes Skynet, you know, yeah, watching yeah. the Terminator walk up to my front door and knock. Um, will there have to be some kind of a fundamental change in China's leadership? I mean, beyond just the uh, um, Eastern versus Occidental thinking, you know, their, their political situation is they are a communist country. If communism were not the dominant political system, would that change the equation considerably, or would we still have some uh, some things that we'd have to work out between their way of seeing the world versus the Western way of seeing it? I think there would still be a lot of um, a lot of hurdles. Uh, there's still a huge uh, collectivist mentality over in China, and obviously there's like a lot of discontent with the Chinese Communist Party that gets squashed, frankly. Um, but this is such an entrenched mentality that's just kind of part of the milieu, if you will, whereas, you know, individuality is just the, the mode of how we operate here. So I don't really think there's a way to off ramp for the for at least in our lifetimes. Um, I think we just kind of have to acknowledge this is what it is for the foreseeable future. What are some of the resources that you would recommend to our listening audience uh, for people who want to get their minds around this? I mean, this uh, this can be a complex issue on any number of fronts, but uh, if they want to delve into this and find good, timely, credible information besides your articles, what other uh, sources of information might you recommend? Yeah, so I'd recommend uh, Paul Kingsworth uh, on Substack. Uh, Abby of Miss Roll is the name of his newsletter. And then I would recommend Return.Life, which is a um, publication on theblaze.com. Okay. Again, we're talking with Samuel Mangold Lennett. And uh, where, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, so you can find me on X at S-M-L-E-N-E-T-T. Very good. Sam, great to catch up with you once again. Thanks for keeping an eye on the difficult subjects and helping make them understandable for, for the rest of us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, and Merry Christmas. And to you, too, and a Happy New Year. Likewise. Likewise.